The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. Tonight on Human Voices Wake Us, we grapple with two or three of the most important questions, really, and they remain important because they really don't have any answers. There's only the trying. And in the first segment, we read from Andrew Solomon's book, Far From the Tree, on the experience of parents and the challenges of certain kinds of children. In the part that I'm going to read from tonight, it, they happen to be uh, prodigies, musical prodigies. And uh, what is a parent's reaction to uh, a sense of giftedness like that? And what happens to a child's life uh, when they are so gifted, so clearly gifted, but uh, they're still a child and they're still a teenager, and at some point uh, they are adults dealing with all of this? How, how does that work? And how do you live uh, a decent life uh, being so very gifted? Uh, as Andrew Solomon says at one point, um, what we call disability uh, or what we call giftedness is sometimes just as difficult to deal with as what we would consider to be disability, which is in the, the rest of that book, Far From the Tree. And in the second segment tonight, we will read one of the great examples of poetry from the ancient world, fourth or fifth century. Um, some Israelite somewhere in the ancient Near East uh, put down the book of Job. And what I will read from is God's answer to Job and all the questions that he put to God um, about why he is suffering and why his children have been taken away from him, his property, his riches, and all that he owns. Um, what is the answer to suffering, basically, Job wants to know. And so the second segment will be God's answer to Job, which, as we will discover, is actually not an answer either, because life is very hard, isn't it? And so let's get down to that right after this message. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Andrew Solomon writes in his book, Far From the Tree, I knew someone in college, her name was Louise McCarran, who showed brilliant talent as a pianist. 
In her early 20s, she was to make her Kennedy Center debut. Her parents hired a bus to take friends and relatives to the performance. And two days before the concert, everyone received notice that Louise had had an injury and would be unable to play. I thought it might be repetitive stress from all the practicing, but it was simply that her pinky hurt. In the 25 years since, Louise has never scheduled or made a public performance. She lives alone in an apartment with two pianos and practices eight hours a day. Dating and marrying are impossible because she must give everything to her art. When she occasionally comes to a party, she introduces herself as a concert pianist, even though she has never given a concert. Now, the subtitle of Andrew Solomon's book, Far From the Tree, is Parents, Children, and the Search for Identity. And this might be the book with the largest amount of empathy in it that I have ever read. It's nearly a thousand pages, and it is spread over 12 chapters with uh, titles like Son, which is about himself, uh, Deaf, Dwarfs, Down Syndrome, Autism, Schizophrenia, Disability, Prodigies, Rape, Crime, Transgender, and Father, and the Father is also about him. And uh, in these pages, uh, it's, it's incredible. Uh, I took uh, a month or so out, or I guess it would have been almost three months out a while ago, and just read, read one chapter out of this every week. You meet such a huge human community in this. It's almost baffling. It is Shakespearean. It, it, it is, for those of you who know the Irish short story writer William Trevor, it is like what he is able to do, except these people are all uh, real. They are all people that Andrew Solomon met and interviewed, and he collected their stories and has very lovingly and honestly and, I don't know, just remarkably told them. And as you can tell by the, the titles of each of the chapters, they are each about various challenges and difficulties that parents can find in their children. And uh, chapter eight is called Prodigies, and that's what I want to read from a little bit from tonight. And Andrew Solomon makes the point at the beginning of the chapter on prodigies that being gifted and being disabled are surprisingly similar. They're isolating, they're mystifying, petrifying. And one of the most startling patterns that emerged during my research was that many people came to value abnormalities that are ostensibly undesirable. And equally, ostensibly desirable variances are often daunting. And it was very hard to choose just one story from this chapter on prodigies, but I think I found a pretty good one especially after that short introduction about his friend, Louise McCarran, who decided to never give any performances in public and yet still considers herself to be a concert pianist. We have to consider what, what great talent does to people, not just when they're children, but also as adults. There has to be, as I heard said about um, a movie critic that hardly anyone uh, in the mainstream agrees with. Uh, someone said about this movie critic, there has to be room 
for cranks and weirdos still, doesn't there? There has to be room for people who just don't belong anywhere, and there has to be a way for them to just exist and be weird. But uh, in any case, this is Andrew Solomon's few pages on a man named uh, Leon Fleischer, and this is what he has to say about him. Leon Fleischer was born in 1928 in San Francisco, where his immigrant father had become a milliner who made hats for Lucille Ball. Leon's brother was the reluctant recipient of piano lessons, and Leon used to listen. When my brother went out to play ball, I would go to the piano and play as the teacher wanted, Leon recalled. His parents soon switched the lessons from his brother to Leon, and before long, he was studying with a Russian named Lev Shore, who was the San Francisco prodigy maker. He felt it wasn't a good lesson until he made me cry, Leon says, but he would take me out to lunch afterwards and feed me lamb chops. In 1937, the conductor of the San Francisco Symphony heard one of Leon's first recitals and decided that the boy should study in Italy with the renowned pianist Arthur Schnabel. Schnabel politely declined. He was not interested in nine-year-old pupils. A few months later, the conductor invited Schnabel to dinner, snuck Leon in, and obliged Schnabel to listen. Schnabel immediately took Leon as a student, on the condition that he give no further concerts. Schnabel understood that Leon's mother wanted merely fame, and that he had to keep the boy focused on music. Leon and his mother went to Como in 1938, and Schnabel's lessons were different from anything Leon had known. The prodigy makers separate technique and music, Leon said. Schnabel maintained that technique is the ability to do what you want. He advocated sitting in a comfortable chair and studying the music before you started to play, not drumming it out before you thought out how you would like it to sound. Schnabel had never heard more than a half dozen students, never had more than a half do dozen students, and he made each attend the other's lessons. And Leon says, he would do a whole lesson on 12 bars, and we would stagger out like inebriates, filled not just with information, but with inspiration, Schnabel dealt in transcendence. At the brink of World War II, Italy was hardly the place for a Jewish pupil to study with a Jewish pianist, and before long, Schnabel sent Leon back home. Schnabel emigrated to New York soon thereafter, so Leon's father had to take a job in an East Coast factory. That became a heavy responsibility for a kid to carry around. Leon said, but his mother was singularly determined. She gave me a choice between being the first Jewish president or a great pianist, he added ruefully. Leon Fleischer made his Carnegie Hall debut in 1944 at 16 and quickly established himself. His career rise was meteoric, and three years later Schnabel told him that his studies were over. I was desolate when he dismissed me, Leon said. Then I remember hearing on the radio one of his Beethoven sonata recordings and reveling in how extraordinarily beautiful it was. 
but I wasn't sure that I would have done it quite that way. Leon had a 20-year blaze of glory before he was struck at 36 with focal dystonia, a neurological condition that causes involuntary muscle contractions, which made it impossible for him to use the third and fourth fingers of his right hand. Focal dystonia is associated with relentless repetition of fine motor skill patterns, despite the onset of pain, and Leon's son, the jazz musician Julian Fleischer, explained he used his right hand relentlessly because his mother told him to. He used it until it broke. Leon went through a depression. His marriage fell apart. And he says, it took a couple of years of despair before I realized that my connection was to music, not to being a two-handed piano player. And he reinvented himself as a conductor, as a teacher and a performer of the limited but pyrotechnic left-hand piano repertoire. Leo's maturity is highly self-aware. And he says, you can either perform a piece as though you're in the midst of what's happening or as a narrator. You know, once upon a time there was. That can be more expressive. It frees the listener's imagination. It doesn't dictate, this is what I feel, therefore you should feel this. A prodigy, he says, can't do that, but a fully developed performer can. And he describes brilliant young students as being like people who want to build a house around a decorative object. And he says, I teach them for instance, the bedroom goes here, the kitchen there, and the living room there. You have to have that before you fill it with beautiful things. First is the structure. His son, Riley, pointed out that this tremendously nuanced way of thinking does not extend to human relations. And he says, it's not a question of being nice, but of noticing the minds of the people he loves. But then in the music, it's all there. I wondered, Andrew Solomon writes, I wondered whether Leon's dystonia had brought any rewards. This forced me, Leon says, it forced me and so enabled me to go sideways, to expand my field of what is the companion word to vision, Orisian, were I given the chance to relive it and not come down with focal dystonia, I'm not sure I would change anything. The dystonia proved what he had learned from Schnabel, that musicianship requires modesty. Schnabel likened the performer to the alpine mountain guide, Leon said. His aim is to lead you to the top of the mountain so that you can enjoy the view. He isn't the goal. The teacher isn't the goal. The view is. When Leon was in his mid-seventies, Botox relaxed the permanently cramped muscles of his hand, and Rolfing further eased the movement of his soft tissue. He began to perform with both hands again, and his subsequent recordings earned him high honors. Quite a uh, remarkable comeback, you might say. The technique isn't what it was, Julian said, and what's left, it, what's left is the musicality. He almost doesn't play notes, he plays the meaning in them. And Leon says, I am in no way cured. When I play, a good 80 to 90% of my concentration and awareness is how to deal with my hand. 
I've worn away the cartilage between my joints, so bone is rubbing on bone in my fingers, and it's a little bit like the Little Mermaid. She fell in love with a man, and her wish was granted. She became a human. But the price was that every step she took was like walking on knives. That's a fairy tale I remember very, very clearly. Musical prodigies are sometimes compared to child actors, but child actors portray children, Andrew Solomon says. No one pays to watch a six-year-old playing Hamlet. No discipline has ever been permanently transformed by a child's revelations. Leon Botstein said prodigies confirmed conventional wisdom. They never change it. Musical performance can quickly be integrated because it is rule-driven, structured, and formal. Profundity comes later. Mozart was the archetypal prodigy, but if he hadn't lived past 25, we'd know nothing of him as a composer. After the English lawyer Danes Beringen examined the eight-year-old Mozart in 1764, this is what he wrote, he had a thorough knowledge of the fundamental principles of composition, he was also a master of modulation, and his transitions from one key to another were excessively natural and judicious. Yet Mozart was also clearly a child, and he goes on to say, Whilst he was playing to me, a favorite cat came in, upon which he immediately left his harpsichord, nor could we bring him back for a considerable time. He would also sometimes run about the room with a stick between his legs by way of a horse. And so, Andrew Solomon goes on, every prodigy is a chimera of such mastery and childishness, and the contrast between musical sophistication and personal immaturity can be striking. One prodigy whom I interviewed had switched from the violin to the piano when she was seven. She offered to tell me why if I didn't tell her mother. I wanted to sit down, she said. Most people who received rigorous early training do not become singular musicians. Juilliard's Veda Kablinski, who is perhaps the world's most highly esteemed piano teacher for young students, says this, Until the child reaches 18 or 19, you don't know if he'll have the emotional capacity for expression. A mature childhood can be a recipe for an immature adulthood, a principle most publicly borne out by Michael Jackson. A Japanese proverb says that the 10-year-old prodigy becomes a talented 15-year-old on the way to mediocrity at 20. The sprinter unwisely indulges his arrogance against the marathon runner, and likewise, parents who encourage their children's narcissism do them no favors. It is best to accomplish something before becoming famous because if the fame comes first, it often precludes accomplishment. The manager, Charles Hamlin, who has nurtured the careers of many stellar musicians, wearily described the parents who want their children to make Carnegie Hall debuts at 12, and he says, you don't build a career by playing Carnegie Hall. You build a career, and then Carnegie Hall will invite you to play. Arthur Schnabel saw Leon Fleischer as a child with remarkable skills, rather than a set of skills inconveniently attached to a child. 
but many parents lack the sophistication to make such a distinction. Karen Monroe, a psychiatrist who works with pro prodigious children, says, when you have a child whose gift is so overwhelming, it is easy for parents to be distracted and lose track of the child himself. Van Cliburn was among the preeminent prodigies of the 20th century, although he was not catapulted to fame until he was 23 when he won the Tchaikovsky piano competition at the height of the Cold War and was welcomed home with the ticker tape parade. His mother was a piano teacher, and when she was teaching him, she would say, you know, I'm not your mother now. And of his childhood, Clyburn said, there were other things I would like to have done besides practicing the piano, but I knew my mother was right about what I should do. Clyburn lived with his mother all her life, but he largely forsook his career after the death of his father, who was also his manager, because he could not bear the pressure, and he suffered from depression and alcoholism, becoming a revered fixture of Fort Worth society. Kind, affable, piously reactionary, and the figurehead of an eponymous competition that has become as prestigious as the one that he won. In 1945, there were five piano competitions worldwide. There are now 750. Robert Levin, professor of music at Harvard, says, the favored repertoire is music of such technical challenges that, as recently as 30 years ago, less than 1% of pianists were playing it. Now about 80% are, but it isn't an improvement. It reflects a purely gladiatorial physical behavior. You should not tell a young student to learn the notes and then add the expression. You might as well tell the chef, first you cook the food, then you add the flavor. And you can tell just by me reading this, um, I've commented hardly at all. And I think it is worth going on here and uh, not having a second segment uh, not having three segments in this episode this week, just to read more of this. This is another page or so uh, from the chapter on prodigies. Uh, throughout much of history, prodigies were thought to be possessed. Aristotle believed that there could be no genius without madness. Paganini was accused of putting himself in the hands of the devil. And the Italian criminologist Cesare Lombroso said in 1891, genius is a true degenerative psychosis belonging to the group of moral insanity. Recent neuroscience demonstrates that the process of creativity and psychosis do map similarly in the brain, each contingent on a reduced number of dopamine D2 receptors in the thalamus. A continuum runs between the two conditions there is no sharp line. Norman Geishfeind, the father of behavioral neurology, observed that prodigies often have a mix of abilities and challenges, including dyslexia, delayed language acquisition, and asthma, pathologies of superiority, he says. And these can be severe. One family told me that their son could identify more than 50 pieces of music when he was two years old. He would call out Mahler Fifth or Brahms Quintet, and at five the boy was diagnosed 
with borderline autism. Their pediatrician's instruction was to break the burgeoning obsession by taking away music completely, which they did. The autism symptoms abated, but he lost his ability for music. Some researchers claim that musical predisposition is a function of an autistic type hypersensitivity to sound. And according to the Israeli psychiatrist Pinchas Noy, music is the organizing defense of such children against the clatter that assaults them. A number of musicians described in this chapter likely meet clinical criteria for autism spectrum disorders. The association between genius and madness makes many parents wary of prodigious children. Miraka Gross, an Australian expert on gifted children, posits that they have more resilience than other children, while extremely gifted children actually have less resilience. Zarin Mehta, president of the New York Philharmonic, said that he and his wife say to each other, thank God we don't have such talented children. The prodigy pianist Elisha Abbas, who burned out at 14 but has made something of a comeback in his mid-twenties, says this, sometimes the shoulders of a child are not big enough to handle his genius. Anyone who has worked with prodigies, Andrew Solomon goes on, has seen the wreckage that can ensue when someone is asynchronous, which is the condition of having intellectual, emotional, and physical ages that do not align. It is no easier to have an adult-like mind in a child's body than to have a childlike mind in a mature body. Joseph Polisi, president of Juilliard, says, Normal young children pick up the fiddle or go to the keyboard, and they're transformed before your eyes. It's frightening. His colleague, Veda Kaplinsky, added, Genius is an abnormality, and abnormalities do not come one at a time. Many gifted kids have ADD or OCD or Asperger's. When the parents are confronted with two sides of a kid, they're so quick to acknowledge the positive, the talented, the exceptional, but they're in denial over everything else. Musical performance is a sustained exercise in sensitivity, and sensitivity is the tinder of fragility. The parents of so many exceptional children must be educated to see the identity within a perceived illness, and the parents of prodigies are confronted with an identity and must be educated to recognize the prospect of illness within it. Even those without a sideline diagnosis need to mitigate the loneliness of having their primary emotional relationships within an animate object. The psychiatrist Karen Monroe explained, if you're spending five hours a day practicing and the other kids are outside playing baseball, you're not doing the same things. Even if you love it and can't imagine yourself doing anything else, that doesn't mean you don't feel lonely. And Leanne Bostein says bluntly, aloneness is the key to creativity. And isn't that something that I've been saying forever and ever here? Um, I am no prodigy. I am no extremely gifted person by any stretch of the word. And yet uh, that loneliness and that isolation is just right there at the mall. Um, you're going through and wanting to read this or that book 
um, rather than being at the mall while other people are simply, while the majority of nearly everyone is simply interested in other things. How do you deal with that? And I'll just imagine that feeling, that feeling of isolation many of us feel, uh, in the mind of a child who doesn't know any differently, and they only know their, their talent. And Andrew Solomon goes on to say, suicide is an ever-present risk. Brandon Bremer had prodigious musical abilities, finished high school at 10, and told an interviewer flatly, America is a society that demands perfection. When he was 14, his parents left the house to buy groceries, and they returned to find that he had shot himself in the head, leaving no note. He was born an adult, his mother said. We just watched his body grow bigger. Terence Judd performed with the London Philharmonic Orchestra at 12. He won the least piano competition at 18 and committed suicide at 22 by throwing himself off a cliff. The violinist Michael Rabin had a breakdown and, quote, recovered, only to die of, of, from a fall at 35, his blood full of barbiturates. Christian Kriens, a high-profile Dutch prodigy in violin, piano, and conducting, and composing, shot himself in the head in later life, leaving a note saying he felt he could not sustain a career in music. Although Julian Wybra, in his writings on the emotional needs of gifted children, described the growing problem of suicide among intellectually gifted children, others maintain that there is no research to show that such children are less emotionally hardy than others. That is not to say that brilliance is irrelevant to suicide. Some people may be spurred to suicide by their abilities while others resist suicide because of similar abilities. Genius is both a protection and a vulnerability, and geniuses commit both more and less suicide. That the numbers average out the same does not imply that such rates are ontologically identical. The nuances of this dialectic, what drives some people to suicide and keeps others from it, have not been adequately explored. And just one more paragraph here. And um, it was remarkable, before I came down here to record this, my daughter asked me, what is that book that you're holding? And the first thing that came to mind was to say, this is one of the best books you will ever read when you are old enough to do so. And it really is. Um, it just makes me want to reread it again because it is so human. And these are the human voices that I have been trying to collect here for almost three years now. But one last paragraph about gifted musicians here. Uh, when these suicides do occur, parents tend to be blamed, and some do push their children to the breaking point. The presence of the stage mother or the demanding father who is never satisfied runs through the professional literature. Some parents are focused on helping their kids and others just on helping themselves and many don't recognize a gap between these objectives. Some parents see the dream so vividly that they lose sight of the child. And Robert Sirota, president of the Manhattan School of Music says, mothers had their little boys castrated in Renaissance Italy to give them a music career. And the psychological mutilation of today is equally brutal. 
mental health, independence of thought and intelligence, become particularly important as buffers of extraordinary aptitude that has nothing to do with them. Failed prodigies must forever carry the poisonous memory of themselves as being promising. The narrative of prodigies is constantly pushed toward triumph or tragedy, when most must find contentment somewhere in between, and that is also, in all of my episodes on jealousy and all the rest of it, that is also something. Um, not the one or the other, but the in-between that uh, is no extreme and the in-between that nobody notices. And finally, the violinist Yashka Heifetz once described prodigiousness as being a disease which is generally fatal, and one that he was among the few to have the good fortune to survive. One of the most intense and memorable reading experiences of my life took place during my senior year of high school. This would have been January or so of 1997. And so many other things were going on uh, just in terms of reading and of poetry and of being introduced to, to things that I'd never come across before. Uh, I was getting into Shakespeare very deeply for the first time after seeing Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. Uh, James Joyce was sitting right there. I was reading Dubliners and doing whatever I could do with Ulysses for the very first time. Um, I was about to discover T.S. Eliot and Walt Whitman, and I'm sure there are others in there as well. But just as it is, and I was about to uh, uh, fall in love for the first time as well. It actually may have started uh, during this period that I'm about to describe. And... Um, and alongside all of that, which is reflected still in this podcast uh, 25 years later, 26 years later, I suppose, is what it really is, uh, is a mixture of literature, but also religion, also mythology, whatever you want to do with those terms, and whichever of those terms you prefer. And it turned out that I didn't really know my Hebrew Bible very well. I had heard the story of Jonah uh, somewhere, and uh, the story of the prophet who is called by God to go to the city of Nineveh and tell them what a bad job they're doing in their lives. And uh, he says, I don't want to do that. He tries to uh, escape what God has told him to do by jumping on a ship. Uh, the ship encounters a great storm. The men on the ship uh, wonder what's going on, and they find Jonah in the hold. Uh, and they say, how can you sleep during this storm? Uh, they cast lots, Jonah draws the lot, Jonah's swallowed by the whale and gets cast up uh, and he ends up going to Nineveh anyway and to his great consternation, he didn't want to go there in the first place, but to his great consternation the Ninevites uh, uh, go along with what he's saying and they repent and Jonah is very grumpy about all of this and um, he goes and hides under a huge gourd or in the shade of a huge gourd or something like that. And 
that whole that whole story is just uh, an an incredible narrative, uh, just of image to image to image is just remarkable. And when I was reading the Hebrew Bible, and I believe this is in the organization that comes in the Christian Bibles, uh, the Book of Job comes earlier. If you look at the Hebrew Bible, the actual if you go get a Jewish Hebrew Bible. The prophets come first. So I would have read Jonah before Job. But since I was reading the Christian organization of the Bible, the New King James Version, uh, Job came first. And I mistook Job for Jonah. And uh, so I sat down through a long night and I read the book of Job in one sitting. And uh, for the first half of it or so, I was waiting for the whale to show up. Uh, the book of Jonah is one of the shortest books of the Hebrew Bible. The book of Job is one of the longest. And uh, by the middle of, of Job, I realized this is not the same story. This is something else going on here. And it was that thing, uh, senior year of high school, uh, 17 years old, uh, sitting down and reading the book of Job. Uh, God uh, making a wager with uh, the Satan, not the devil of later uh, thinking, but just the Satan, the accuser, um, and saying, do whatever you want to my servant Job and we'll see how pious he is. And the rest of the book after uh, Job's family, other than his wife, has been killed. All of his property has been destroyed and taken away. Um, and he is left with a body racked by disease and sores. And his friends come, you might say, to sit shiva with him. They wait the customary amount of days and then they just start talking about um, what has happened to him. And you have Job on the one hand saying, I haven't done anything to deserve what has happened to me and to my family. And his three friends who represent uh, what you might say as uh, conventional piety, uh, they basically tell him, well, all of this has happened. Uh, th the only reason that God or whatever it is uh, brings these things upon someone is because they deserve it. So you must have done something. And there's just this back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Um, by the end of the book of Job, God uh, sort of lectures the three friends on their simplistic conventional piety, their version of understanding how the world works and how God works and how punishment and suffering work. But he also doesn't let Job off the hook either. And what we are left with is an immense mystery. And to me anyway, this is the great question, not just of religion. You don't have to be religious or a believer or anything of the kind to be uh, disturbed by the simple question of why bad things happen at all. Uh, in Job's case, why bad things apparently happen to good people, why good things happen to apparently bad people. Um, the popular version of religion and, and the, the one that usually makes people not believe anymore and run away from religion uh, tells you that at some point uh, in the future, perhaps after our death, everything is settled and everything is made just and everything is made good. Uh, but 
even that is not enough for conventional piety. We have to believe that that is reflected somehow in our daily lives, that if someone has succeeded, uh, God or whatever it is likes them. Um, if they are having a bad time, they must have done something to deserve it, and so on and so forth. You find examples of this everywhere. But if God, so what does God say to Job? This is the most powerful expression of, of an answer, which is no answer, really. No answer that would please anybody who actually wants peace and an answer. On the one hand, he tells his friends, your conventional piety is rubbish. That is not how the world works. That is not how uh, any divinity ruling the world works. But he also doesn't just tell Job, well, you were right the whole time. What God does is he presents this incredible poem. He speaks out of the whirlwind and he describes the world that, uh, according to Hebrew scripture, God created. The world, the animals, the world of nature, and all the rest of it. And this is presented uh, at first as a kind of taunt, um, you are not big enough uh, to have done any of the things that I've done, and so I can do what I want with you. But by the end of it, you're just left with the realization that the world and existence is so huge and so complex, and our ideas about God and divinity and prayer and ritual and piety and all the rest of it are also so complex that we don't have an answer as to why anything really happens at all. Outside of the very obvious uh, examples where you can point to bad decision equals this, you can see it happen, or good decision, like someone uh, saving their money and being able to do this. Outside of obvious things, that doesn't happen. And so what we're left with is this great uh, reply, this great and terrifying and haunting reply by God in the book of Job uh, in chapters 38 through uh, 42. And that is what I'm going to read right now. And this is in the translation by Raymond P. Scheindlin. And that is the one that I would recommend to anyone who just wants a one volume book of Job. And this is what it says. You'll forgive me for saying the word Yahweh here, but it says Yahweh's reply to Job. Yahweh answered Job from the storm after he has taken, after Job's family has been taken other than his wife, and after his riches and his property and all that he owns is gone. Yahweh answered Job from the storm, who dares speak darkly, words with no sense. Since you're waste like a fighter, I will put questions, and you will inform me. Where were you when I founded the earth? Speak, if you have any wisdom. Who set its measurements, if you know? It laid out the building lot, stretching the plumb line. Where was the ground where he sank its foundations? Who was setting the cornerstone when the morning stars were all singing, when the gods were all shouting triumphant? Who barred the sea behind double gates as it was gushing out of the womb? When I made the clouds its covering, Fog its swaddling, broke its will with my decree, set bar and double gate, and said, This far, no farther, here stops your breaker's surge. 
When did you ever give Dawn his orders? Assign the rising sun his post to grasp the corners of the world and shake the wicked out of it. Make the world heave, break like a seal of clay. They stand up naked. The wicked are denied their light. The haughty arm is broken. Have you ever reached the depths of the sea and walked around there exploring the abyss? Have you been shown behind the gates of death or seen the gates of death dark? Have you beheld the earth's expanses? Tell me if you know everything. Where is the path to where light dwells and darkness where does it belong? Can you conduct them to their regions or even imagine their homeward paths? You must know you were born long ago. So many years have you counted this great sarcastic God. Uh, have you reached the storm, the stores of snow, or seen the stock of hailstones that I have laid up for times of trouble, days of battle, days of war? Where is the path to where lightning forks when an east wind scatters it over the ground? Who cracks open a channel for the torrent, clove the path for the thunder shower to rain on lands where no man lives, on wildernesses uninhabited, to feed a wasteland, fill a desolation, make it flower, sprout grass? Does the shower have a father who begot the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth? Who gave birth to the sky frost? Water clotting as to stone, the abyss congeals. Do you tie the sky sisters with ropes or undo Orion's bonds? Do you bring out the stars as they are due? Guide the bear, the great bear and her young? Do you know the laws that rule the sky? Can you make it control the earth? Can you thunder at the clouds so that a flood of water covers you? Can you loose the lightning and have it say as it goes, your servant? Who gave wisdom to the ibis, gave the cock its knowledge? Who is wise enough to counsel the clouds? Pour out the jars of heaven when the soil is fused solid and clods stick thickly. Do you hunt prey for the lioness? Do you satisfy her young when they are crouching in their lair, sitting in ambush in the covert? Who put prey in the raven's way when her fledglings cried to God, wandering aimless without food? Do you know when the antelope gives birth, watch for the calving of the deer? Do you count the months they have to pass? Know how, when their time has come, they crouch split open for their young, release their newborns. The calves thrive, grow in the wild, then leave them, never return. Who gave the wild ass his freedom, undid his bonds? The beast I made to live in wasteland gave the salt flat as a home so that he might laugh at crowded cities and never hear the driver's call but scour the hills for pasturage, hunting for any bit of green. Does the buffalo deign to serve you? Will he sleep by your feeding trough? Can you tie him to a furrow with a rope? Will he harrow the plain behind you? Can you rely on him for all his power and leave your work to him? Can you trust him to bring in your produce and heap it up for threshing? Delightful 
is the ostrich wing. But is it a pinion, like stork or vulture? She leaves her eggs on the ground, warms them in the sand, forgets that they could be crushed by feet, trampled by beasts, hard to her young. They might be anyone's. Her labor for nothing, no fear. Yes, God deprived her of wisdom, created her without sense. Yet when she runs up a hill, she can laugh at stallion and rider. Do you give the stallion his strength? Do you clothe his neck in a fearsome mane? Do you make him thunder like a locust swarm? His awesome snort is terror. With his hooves he strikes holes in the ground. Thrilled with his own force, he advances to battle. He laughs, dauntless at fear. Never turns back in the face of the sword. Around him quivers rattle. Lances and javelins flash. But he gulps ground, raging and roiling. Cannot stand still when the battle horn sounds. The battle horn sounds, and hooray, he cries. He can smell a battle from afar. Thunder of fighters charge cries. Does the vulture take wing from your wisdom when he spreads his pinions southward? Does the eagle sword your bidding, building his nest up high? He dwells, shelters on cliffs, on rock crags and fastnesses. From there he seeks food, and his eyes peer far, his chicks lap gore. Where there is a corpse, you will find him. Yahweh turned back to Job and says, One who brings Shaddai to court should fight. He who charges a god should speak. But Job answered Yahweh, I see how little I am. I will not answer you. I am putting my hand to my lips. One time I spoke. I will not speak again. Two times I spoke. And I will not go on. Yahweh answered Job from the storm. Since your waste like a fighter, I will put questions and you will inform me. Would you really annul my judgment? Make me out to be guilty and put yourself in the right? Is your arm as mighty as God's? Does your voice thunder like his? Just dress up in majesty, greatness. Try wearing splendor and glory. Snort rage in every direction. Seek out the proud, bring him down, seek out the proud man, subdue him, crush cruel men where they stand. Hide them together in dirt, bind them in the hidden place. Then even I would concede to you when your right hand had gained you a triumph. Just look at the river beast that I put alongside you. He eats grass like cattle. Look at his thighs, what power, the might in his belly muscles. He wills his tail into cedar, his thigh thews twist tight, his bones are unyielding bronze, his limbs are like iron bars, he is the first of God's ways. Let none but his maker bring forth his sword, for the hills bring their yield, their tribute to him, the hills where the wild beasts play to him who lies under the lotus in a marsh and a covert freeze sheltered shaded by lotus, surrounded by droop-leaf willows, look, he gulps a whole river, but languidly calm, as the Jordan surges into his mouth. Can you catch him by the eye? Can you pierce his nose with thorns? Can you draw the river coiler with a hook? 
bind down his tongue with a rope, string him through the nose of the reed, bore his cheek with a thistle? Would he beg you for mercy, gentle you with words? Would he deign to be your ally? Could you make him a slave for life? Could you pet him like a bird, leash him for your girls to play with? Will partners haggle over him or cut him into lots from mongers? Can you fill his skin with darts, get his head into a fishnet? Just put your hand on him. You will remember the battle. You will not do it again. Look, hope of him is delusion. Even to glance at him is to fall. Is he not fierce when aroused? Who could stand ground in his presence? Who could address him unscathed? Under all the heavens, that man would be mine. I would not silence his boasting, his talk of feats, his grace in battle. Who could strip away the surface that covers him, get him into the folds of his bridle? Who could throw open the gates of his countenance, his teeth, cast terror all around? Haughty, his mighty shield, shut, sealed tight, each comes right up to the other. No air gets between them. Each clings to each, united, unparting. He, his sneezes, make the light shimmer. His eyes are like the eyelids of dawn. From his mouth comes torches, fire sparks fleeting. His nostrils smoke like a pot that seethes over reeds. His, throats, his throat blazes like coals. His mouth emits flame. Might resides in his neck. Misery dances before him. The cascades of his flesh cling, like cast metal on him, immovable. Solid as rock is his heart, millstones solid. When he erupts, the gods cower, shrink from the waves. Reach him with a sword and it fails, far traveling spear or arrow. Iron to him is straw, bronze a rotten tree. Arrows cannot repel him. Fling stones, he turns to chaff, stubble to him the shaft. He laughs at the lance's whir. His underside is sharp shards. He drags a threshing sledge in the mud. He makes the deep boil, the sea-like soup. Behind him gleams his wake, the abyss, white as an old man's head. Nothing on dusty earth is like him made not to fear. He gazes at lofty creatures, king of the haughtiest beings. And Job's reply, Job answered Yahweh, I know that you are all powerful and that no plan is beyond you. Who dares to speak hidden words with no sense? I see that I spoke with no wisdom of things beyond me I did not know. Listen now, and I will speak. I will put questions, and you will inform me. Job says, I knew you, but only by rumor. My eye has beheld you today. I retract. I even take comfort for dust and ashes. And what do you all make of that tonight? It's something to sit with, something I've been sitting with for 25 years now, and it never gets old. So many things between 
the senior year of high school in this moment um, that I thought were important, that I thought were moving and substantial and uh, whatever word you can think of. Uh, so many of those things have just gone by the wayside and been forgotten. But that is always something that I can come back to, to see the terror and the terrible beauty of things and of what it means, I suppose, to take not just religion seriously, but just our everyday lives. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.